Hello, and welcome to Then and Now. This episode was recorded before the murder of George Floyd and the wave of protests that have swept across the country and the world. However, our guest, Autry Museum curator Tyree Boyd-Pates, has spent most of his career addressing the very issues highlighted by the protests. In this episode, Tyree discusses his work in overcoming what he calls historical blind spots. In particular, how the telling of the history of the American West requires far more attention to the history of the Black experience. He shared with us the following message about the current moment. Quote, As a response to and in solidarity with the Movement for Black Lives, the Autry's Collecting Community History Initiative will be assisting in collecting, cataloging, and preserving this moment of important civil rights history in real time. If you'd like to submit your voice, story, account, protest sign and materials or images, we would love to include yours for future consideration for exhibitions and our permanent collection, end quote. You can refer to the link in our episode description for more details about their work. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a new podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center. The goal of our center is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Our guest today is Tyree Boyd-Pates, Associate Curator at the Autry Museum of the American West and a good friend of the Luskin Center. Mr. Boyd-Pates was featured just recently on May 26th in a front page story of the New York Times about a new Autry project that he is spearheading to collect objects, artifacts, and other markers of this most unusual moment in human history, that is the COVID-19 crisis. Welcome to you, Tyree, and congratulations on that piece in the New York Times. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I am so excited to be here with you, and uh, thank you for that mention. It's very exciting times. Great. Well, we'll talk about the collecting project um, a little bit later, but uh, I'd love to know how the Times piece came about, and if you could give us some sense of the impact that it has had so far. Yes. Uh, well, yesterday, the New York Times wrote about the Autry's Collecting Community History Initiative collecting uh, in the West during COVID-19. And in just a short period of time, we've seen an, a visibility that one could only dream of relating to public history. Um, the, the, the impetus for this project really stems from epidemiological conversations that we were having internally. And it is a offshoot of those conversations and a project within the curatorial team. And sure enough, um, we, we felt it would, it would, it would be timely, um, but we weren't anticipating the visibility that comes um, in fact with the, a large publication like the Times. So did the New York Times just the did the Times just pick up the phone and, and, and reach out to you? Yeah, yes. In, in fact, they did. Uh, I, I, I believe our the ingenuity of our communications team at the Autry, shout out to Keisha Raines in particular, um, pitched the story to several outlets, mm -hmm. um, but it was picked up and mm -hmm. uh, we were working on the story over the course of the month of May. And uh, we, we were able to include voices of not only myself, um, but those who are within the archive, but also a very uh, esteemed scholars and historians throughout the country, particularly Dr. Brenda Stevenson of UCLA. And uh, we, we, we um, were able to just have a very open dialogue about the ways in which history um, should include all voices at the table, especially during a pandemic such as this. Mm -hmm. Okay. As I said, we would, we definitely want to talk about <laughs> yeah, this yeah, yeah. And, and really how you plan to, um, address the COVID crisis with a, a much wider lens than perhaps has been used in, in past pandemics and epidemics. Um, and, um, you know, more fully how you imagine your role at the Autry. Um, but let's maybe step back and um, delve into the then portion of our show 
and tell us um, uh, how you came to the work of museum curation. What was your path to the world of museums and history? Oh, thank you very much. Um, Well, for me, my love for history started at a very young age, as I believe it probably does for many historians. Um, Had it not been for my grandmother, who kept, uh, you know, manuscripts and novels and memoirs of African-American history and historians in the house, I don't think I would have been uh, privy to nor exposed to the richness of that aspect of American history. And uh, she not only just kept me and my siblings uh, surrounded by books, but she often took us to cultural centers uh, throughout the city of Los Angeles, where I've been where I was born and raised. Uh, She took us particularly to the California African American Museum, where uh, she exposed me in fourth and fifth grade, uh, third, fourth and fifth grade, to the richness of the African American experience in the United States. And from there, it was germinated. um, And it surely wasn't, it was being watered throughout uh, the subsequent years of my adolescence. But it would be through um, my exposure to a a service trip in South Africa that uh, really broadened my ideas of the ways in which the Black experience could be told and retold in authentic ways. And I dedicated my life to finding out ways to do that. And uh, from there, I, uh, after I received my bachelor's um, from Cal State Bakersfield, which was in communications with an emphasis in public relations and a minor in African-American studies, I pivoted and decided to go into, uh, to study um, the Africana studies or Pan-African studies at Temple University in Philadelphia. While there, um, I was able to take classes alongside um, not only an esteemed faculty, but esteemed future doctor, doctoral students um, within the discipline of African-American studies and African-American history. And that is where I cut my teeth. And out of that, um, I, after receiving my master's, I came to Los Angeles in 2014 and decided that I wanted to take the route of becoming a public intellectual or a public historian now um, to be able to to speak uh, directly to the African-American experience, but from a millennial vantage point. And I did that for several years, uh, then had an opportunity to join in a lecturing capacity at Cal State Dominguez Hills, where I was teaching in the Africana Studies Department, and then parlayed that experience finally into museums, um, particularly at the California African-American Museum, where I was the history curator and public program mm-hmm. manager. So it's, it sounds like um, CAM, the California African-American Museum, played a very cyclical, very cyclical. Yeah, played yes. a really important role um, for you as a, as, as a young kid in sort of capturing your attention uh, yeah. and... Uh, introducing you to the historical experience of African-Americans in ways that spoke to you um, and would echo later in your life. Would you say that that experience with Cam was decisive um, in sort of forging your own historical imagination? Absolutely. Not not only decisive, I would say definitive. It was able to show me the breadth and scope as to how Black history uh, could exist uh, in in physical space. And um, I would take those lessons and translate them over um, into my adult and professional life. I also believe that it was able to add more meat to the proverbial skeleton my grandmother was attempting to draw for me as a child um, at home by providing a, a, a political education that, would, that may not have been reinforced within my classrooms as a youth. Um, and so the California African American Museum did both. It, it brought not only a formal education, but a, a political education that was directly inspired by social movements um, that were interwoven into the American experience for um, Black Americans. Mm-hmm. And then what was it like to um, come back to CAM, uh, which I'm sure you had visited many times <laughs> in between, yes. um, as a professional? 
it was a beautiful uh, homecoming, if you will. I feel that in light of larger social political movements that were occurring at the time, i.e. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, CAM was, was deemed by its stakeholders um, who happened to be less than 35 um, as it, 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 um, there was a, a believed perceived obscurity about the institution that I didn't uh, adopt. Um, however, I am someone who spends obsessive hours um, just, you know, reading novels and, and, and historical accounts of the Black experience. So I, I knew that all the museum really needed to do in order to seem effective in telling its uh, a rich social history was having someone who not only shared um, from a particular demographic background, but also an ability to translate it in a way in which physical spaces could be immersive, as well as engaging uh, that uh, the museum um, at that time, so uh, desperately needed in order to confront the, mo the moment and the movement that surrounded it uh, here in Los Angeles and in the, in the country at large. And you did some really wonderful work at CAM. Um, we first met when um, I came to see the show No Justice, No Peace, LA 1992, which, is, which was a 25-year retrospective on the LA uprising. Um, and um, then a year later, you did another deeply informed, historically grounded show, California Bound Slavery on the New Frontier. Um, I wonder what those shows were like for you and really what, what, by that point, several years into your work, what did you see as your, your vision and mission at CAMP? Yes, uh, well, coming into the to CAM, I was given a lot of latitude as well as a lot of confidence um, in my ability to tell um, the Black experience in the American West in full ways. And with that uh, authority given to me, um, I really took that baton and ran with it. And I knew that in order to really capture not only um, the Black experience in the West, I needed to situate the ways in which history directly parallels uh, the contemporary. And I was considerate of the Black Lives Matter movement and the ways in which police accountability and, uh, and its uh, direct impacts on the Black community were mainstreams, major high, uh, headlines, I felt that how could I not only tell a historical story about the ways in which police brutality and accountability in the Black community intersect, but how could I tell it from a regional perspective that had a national, if not international, uh, impact? And sure enough, uh, a, what would be a year later from 2016 into 2017 would be the 25th anniversary of the Rodney King or the Los Angeles uprisings of 92. But I knew that in order to tell that uh, piece of California history, I also needed to draw parallels to the 1965 Watts Rebellion as well as the Zoot Suit Rebellion of the 1940s. And all of that not only, again, was regional history um, and not only state history, but it was it all had direct ricochets on the ways in which we view Black Americans, Black Angelinos, and the communities that surround them and engage them on a regular basis. And that exhibition was my introduction into, uh, the, into public history officially. And it has uh, taken um, me into rooms and places that I um, desire uh, to see public history taken more regularly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that show, I mean, really revealed uh, something about you and your curatorial approach um, uh, because it was based on such solid historical documentation and contextualization um, and also really vivid um, material objects, uh, really rich visual materials. Um, and I wonder, you know, how your museological or curatorial vision um, evolved, emerged. Um, it sounds like that show was really central 
um, in shaping your your curatorial vision. Would that be a fair assessment? That would be a very apt assessment. I from from that moment I learned that what you can do with a five thousand square foot space in telling American history from a particular cultural lens is actually not only important, but it can in fact be transformative. And I was interested in doing that by creating immersive experiences for patrons who typically would really, for all intents and purposes, um, you know, disregard um, that perspective or disregard that aspect of American history. And I w- presented artifacts and historical information in a way that not only was visually engaging, but it provided a new thesis as to how engaged that moment in history that hopefully would lend to to further catalyzation in being um, uh, better citizens in the contemporary. And uh, it, it would move me into presenting exhibitions not only in 5,000 square foot spaces um, overarchingly, but also exhibitions as small as a, a hundred, excuse me, uh, 400 to a thousand feet, where with limited space, I could help hone people's perspectives and contextualize them in ways in which they uh, may never uh, see not only themselves, but that historical insight uh, as fully. So I guess that raises the question of what public history means to you and what you see as the importance of it and what you see as the potential and, and for that matter, what challenges uh, you face as a public historian, whether you have 5,000 square feet or, or 400. Right. Uh, I, I think the approach that I take to public history offers anyone who also sees himself or desires to get into the field with the ripeness of opportunity that is in front of us. I believe that, um, especially in light of uh, political administrations where historical fact is up for question, we as public historians have a duty, a a civic duty, to uh, provide historical context where traditionally it's been marginal, or, or in this moment it's marginalized uh, and and really suppressed at all costs. And I take that mantle very seriously and hope to offer uh, in, in some form of representation to the next generation of public historians who desire to use museums as a platform in order to do so. And uh, what what is in front of us, in fact, is just that, an opportunity. And I hope just to be uh, am- among a larger community or to be seen amongst a larger community of public historians who seek to do this work in making democracy seem more inclusive um, and accessible for those um, within our citizenry. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if um, you as a curator and historian believe that your task includes not just getting history right, but also a certain ethical obligation uh, to not just make um, history accurate and accessible, but to correct injustices of the past. Do you see that as part of your mission as a public historian, as a curator? Absolutely. I I almost feel that, that again, not only my civic duty, but it's my mandate. Uh, Because traditionally for communities of color, they so rarely have had their stories told even to them authentically and are are corrected, if you will. And when I was at the California African American Museum, I was able to very intentionally combat the historical amnesia, the historical malaise that surrounds the Black experience, not only in this country, but particularly in the West, and and, and offer uh, with scholarly detail the uh, ways in which uh, Black Americans in the West have contributed and also shifted national discussion and paradigm and and how those things are still recurring um, even to this day. And exhibitions such as No Justice, No Peace, LA 1992, which offered 
the accounts of those such as uh, the, the King family and if not the Latasha Harlan's family for the first time um, in a museum setting was really provocative and powerful uh, because for even within the window of 25 years, they had felt uh, that history had done them a larger disservice and authentically giving them the platform they needed in order to share their truth about uh, that moment in American history. But I also have seen the ways in which my team at the at CAM and I were able to use the California-bound slavery on the new, new frontiers as an exhibition to completely poke holes at the ways in which enslavement in the West was a was reoccurring since the since the gold rush and how um, even California's participation in becoming a part of the union still would trigger a fugitive slave law that would deport those of African descent who found themselves in California back into slavery, although it was a free state. And that again pokes holes at historical amnesia. Uh, about the ways in which the state, uh, the the West, um, truly uh, was uh, an area that many ought to know the the history that is ripe and rife with uh, unfortunately colonialism, as well as uh, re- removing the fantastical nature of an area of the country that oftentimes. Um, gets excused. <laughs> so I wanted to speak directly to that. And, uh, and fortunately, we were successful on many fronts as a team. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious about your language. What, what was colonial? How would you define the colonial project? Oh, oh, um, in that oh of course, of course. Uh, that, that exhibition uh, in particular discussed the ways in which the Louisiana Purchase would trigger manifest destiny and Western expansion to the which would therefore trigger the the ways in which the calif um, the ways in which the gold rush would create a boom um, impacting uh, not only those of African descent but those of Latin descent in South America as well as those who are of Asian descent too. And so the ways in which all of these things inform the California's formation. Uh, the borders that surround it and who benefits from this new frontier, quote unquote, um, were, was a, a pleasure to be able to offer and also to collaborate with scholars such as Stacey L. Smith, whose work substantiated that exhibition um, was, was really a rich experience because to add to the conversation, Dr. Myers, is that all of the exhibitions that we presented as a team at CAM were undergirded or and, and substantiated by scholarship that is readily available um, and accessible. And we found great uh, pride in bringing what often is seen to be as discussions or academic conversations in this proverbial ivy tower to areas in Los Angeles or areas in the state where traditionally communities of color uh, don't have or, or don't know um, how accessible this information is. And so we just brought life, we brought color, we brought visual representation to the academic uh, rigor and research that these scholars like Stacey L. Smith and Brenda Stevenson and so many others um, bring to their work every day. Right. So it sounds like your task has been to uncover blind spots, uh, to combat amnesia, uh, to challenge received wisdom um, that uh, excludes from the uh, historical canvas um, significant communities, to reclaim the voices of those who have not yet been adequately representative, represented relative to their importance in the picture. Um, and I'm wondering, um, in particular, if you could say more about uh, the Black experience in the West, um, which is where much of your work has landed. Um, and in particular, um, you know, in what ways is the Black experience in the West distinctive, different from Black experiences elsewhere in the country? Um, in what ways do we benefit from uh, observing the history of the Black experience from West to East rather than from East to West or from South to North? Uh, in this case, from West to East. What is it, what is it 
gain for us to use the lens of the black experience in the West to think about the history of the United States? Oh, that's, it's, it's, there's, that's a beautiful question. And there are so many entry points into that. I think my favorite would be the ways in which uh, the African-American experience in the West can actually assist us in gauging the ways in which democracy has been actualized and, and, or has failed. Uh, And this is, this could seem controversial to some who, who are not as well read about it as, as um, I have had the privilege of being. But for instance, if we look at World War II and the ways in which the uh, Long Beach and the Southern California were, uh, were great places of respite for those who, through the Great Migration, were seeking opportunities to work in American factories and how those who came during the 1940s sought refuge in California, not only because of the weather, but because of the economic enterprise and opportunities that areas like Long Beach and Central Avenue would afford to them. And it, this, was a, this was a new pursuit for African Americans who were leaving the South and going to the North and, and or just coming straight to the West out of those two places that really afforded African-Americans the desire to see what, in fact, California, Los Angeles, uh, could offer them outside of this oppressive gaze that the Jim Crow South and the North really um, often projected onto them and their bodies. And what I would soon learn as well as study and ultimately convey within my exhibitions is that oftentimes California, Los Angeles in particular, um, was not seen or nor to be known as a place that uh, afforded, um, that was as deeply uh, segregated as the South was, the same effects of the ways Black codes and Jim Crow policies that were felt and segregation was felt in the, traditionally in the South were, were rampant in the experiences. They just were not as widely touted. And I saw that um, within the 1940s, 50s, and 60s through exhibitions such as Freedom Rally, um, uh, Freedom Rally 1963, which was an exhibition about Dr. Martin Luther King's time um, and activism within Los Angeles' uh, um, South Central uh, area as well as exhibitions that dealt with uh, the ways in which gospel music, um, i.e. how sweet the sound gospel music in Los Angeles was a, a place that um, was, was seen to be uh, important for African-Americans, but they were segregated in the Central Avenue corridor um, at a time in which they thought that they could have been able to go north of Wilshire. And all of these experiences have shown me that not only is California worthy of further analysis through cultural lenses, but it often explains how um, many of the gains, if not the successes that individual African-Americans may feel, um, whether it be through Hollywood and entertainment, may not always translate directly into the collective, whether it be um, in areas such as Los Angeles and the North, like Oakland and the like. And so um, exploring that was a great, great service that I um, was able to delve myself into, but I'm also see its direct impacts in, you know, uh, countering the ways in which amnesia um, has lulled many to sleep. So would you say that California and Los Angeles are different or not very different from um, South, from Chicago, from the East Coast, in terms of um, the structures of segregation and oppression uh, and the persistence of racism? I would say that, uh, or, or I, I've been told uh, by many who um, I've received oral histories from, that uh, it's just a different brand of racism, um, where the South and the North, uh, where the South would be more overt, uh, the North and the West um, structurally could be more, co- more covert in the ways in which racism is uh, enacted, whether it be through housing discrimination or access to education. 
African Americans from all sides of the country um, have been able to relay um, not only in academic settings but in, in casual ones just the ways in which they've seen racism rear its ugly head in their own individual experiences. Mm-hmm. So you've been a great explicator of the Black experience in the West um, through your work at CAM. Um, and just recently, you moved over to uh, the Autry Museum of the West, um, which has not been known uh, as um, a place where the Black experience has been centrally represented. Um, I'm curious what the opportunity was that attracted you to the Autry. Uh, thank you for that question. Uh, the What it initially attracted me to the Autry was the ways in which I viewed my work within public history and the tradition that I uh, feel that I'm a part of. Um, Dr. Lonnie Bunch, the secretary of the Smithsonian, was the first history curator, first curator and history curator at the California African American Museum in 1984. And seeing the ways in which his work um, and his influence has transcended not only race, but the ways in which we perceive American history as a whole truly catalyzed me, uh, not only at CAM, but seeing my work in, in direct conversation. And so it would be the my time spending with his latest book, A Fool's Errand, um, where I saw not only myself in his work, but also my trajectory uh, being uh, alongside historians like himself and making sure that what is deemed as African-American history isn't relegated to just the periphery, but brought into larger national discourse about how it informs American politics, American life, and American democracy. And I felt that in, in my pursuit in telling the Black experience in the West, that instant, an institution like the Autry, who you just remarked, traditionally has been seen as not central, uh, centralizing that uh, particular history, um, would be an opportunity to do just that, uh, broadening a traditional audience's views of itself in very proactive and historical ways. And uh, that ultimately is what inspired me to, to uh, take an organic next step into the Autry to bring that community lens in and uh, have been welcomed with um, wide arms uh, to do so. And I I look forward to not only uh, the projects that I'm immersed in, but future exhibitions and public programming that do just that um, in telling a more, broadening the the American perception of what the West is and who in fact is inside of it. Mm, Yeah. So uh, you mentioned Dr. Lonnie Bunch um, and his book, A Fool's Errand, and we know, of course, of his extraordinary work in uh, creating and bringing to life uh, the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Um, We also know of his insistence that Black history be deemed an integral part of U.S. history more generally, which was, I hope, articulated by uh, one of the most esteemed advisors to Dr. Bunch, uh, the great John Hope Franklin, um, from the inception of his work as, uh, as an historian of the African American experience. And so I'm curious both in how you plan to bring the Black experience into the Autry's vision of the West, and also what the West means to you. What, what, is, what is the West for you, and what is your challenge as a curator to capture it? Oh, that's, uh, again, beautiful questions. Uh, I, I I would say that uh, the 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 work that I do uh, coincides with uh, the work that the Autry has always sought to bring about, and that is uh, the diverse voices of those who who exist in the West. I believe that in this moment uh, that that time is ripe, and uh, bringing in community voices, not only of those who 
reside in the African-American community, but those who live and exist in the novel, uh, in the Native American community, such as the new curator, uh, the new curator that I saw, that has also joined me, Joe Horsecapture, uh, who we're both uh, have a particular tradition as well as a mandate to tell the West um, from cultural perspectives that traditionally have been omitted, if not more emphasized. Uh, and that is core to how I see the West. Uh, doing the work that I've done at CAM has taught me that if we are unable to appreciate more fully the way the West, the way the West has been told, how are we truly appreciating the ways in which American history is told? And I seek to contribute to where history has had tremendous blind spots. And whether that be geographically, uh, regionally, or uh, culturally, uh, I have a responsibility to rise to that occasion, as do institutions such as the Autry and any other, um, whether it be a history museum or an art museum, to really offer those opportunities and, and broaden their curatorial uh, voices so that uh, they are reflective of the patrons that walk through their doors, or at least the patrons they desire to walk through their doors. That's what the future of museums is. And that's, uh, and I choose to start with West um, museums that deal with the American West first um, and my larger trajectory uh, on a national scale. Right. It sounds like such an interesting moment, both for you and for the Autry to really be um, expanding its um, its lens of observation toward a more multicultural, more multi multivocal, more multiracial vision of the West uh, than it has operated with before. And now we have the 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 added lens of the COVID crisis um, to make it even more complicated and interesting. Um, and so I'm curious now if we could talk about this project that was the subject of the New York Times article. <laughs> um, how did the idea come about? Uh, the, the idea, uh, as I uh, briefly shared earlier, came from digital discussions that the curatorial side of the museum were having about how can the Autry meet this moment head on. And in those discussions, we were sharing how uh, the diversity of face masks that were rising to the surface, um, i.e. on social media, and we're trending. We were also looking at how lockdowns as a whole were quarantining families, but uh, the, the virus itself was impacting certain communities more than others. Uh, we were interested in getting accounts of and, and, and having Native voices contribute to this discussion. And we were wanting as a curatorial team to infuse our voices into a, a national narrative, but from a regional perspective. Uh, and so as these discussions were being had, um, I d d took uh, the, the initiative to, uh, to start writing a blog post uh, about these conversations. But while I was working on that blog post, I was reminded again, um, by Dr. Lonnie Bunch's uh, book about his uh, initiative when pursuing uh, filling the museum's collections with historical African-American treasures. And, and that's, in fact, what he did. He, he started an anti uh, a collections initiative that was similar to an antique roadshow called Saving African-American Treasures. And, um, and, after reading that and, and relishing on the blog post, I said, well, seeing that I like Lonnie Bunch and desire to tell this story, I know that I can't do this or the Autry cannot do this uh, without many uh, hands or, or many voices at the table. And so seeing that we have physical limitations and building a relationship with our audience, why not have them contribute in a very similar fashion 
to a digital uh, repository or a digital funnel where we can capture not only their, their stories, their home recipes and images of their face masks, but these accounts that will be so integral to telling uh, future generations about uh, COVID-19 in really robust ways. And out of that blog post, uh, we, we decided to take, uh, decided to bring back to the group a, a pursuit of bringing, making it a larger initiative as a museum and having the blessings of several departments and several partners internally. We wanted to bring this to the general public and, uh, it, it, it all started late March. And in, in several months time, uh, we have seen an enormous response, uh, up north of 150 responses of our, of that, that, that scan the West and those who have been directly invested in, in partnering with us and telling this history, uh, in profound ways and uh, with outlets such as the New York Times and other press that is sure to come, we're excited about meeting this moment head on and the Autry wants to be in in the midst of that conversation. Yeah, I can imagine. So what sorts of materials are you seeing? What's coming in and what what have been some of your favorite or most interesting pieces? Yes, uh, some of my favorite pieces have been Indicative of the diversity of the West, uh, we've received uh, one of my favorite objects was Franklin Wong, who is a six-year-old child who wrote um, on a or drew on a piece of paper the ways in which the virus is keeping him and his family inside and his discontent. And uh, I thought it was a a very beautiful homework, a piece of homework or, or at least assignment. Uh, that he did that I uh, that will be directly important in telling the ways in which COVID nineteen infected children uh, or impacted children. Uh, another another noteworthy uh, submission would be from a woman here in uh, Southern California who kept a bullet journal on a regular basis, and uh, she felt that she contracted symptoms that were similar to the virus and went several times to uh, the hospital, um, but was refused uh, testing. And, and, and in her bullet journal, she documents how um, she was, she was told um, or sent back home irrespective of the symptoms that she felt she had. But she also highlighted the ways in which all the businesses were shutting down here in Los Angeles and across the state. And that submission is indicative of telling uh, what life was like on a daily basis for those in the LA basin. We've also received submissions from New Mexico to Texas, to Utah of, of a diversity of face masks that, uh, that relate to families uh, ingenuity uh, as well as cultural creativity um, that we are excited to uh, have as submissions, as well as the creative stories about how families um, in the Armenian community here in Los Angeles are um, seeking to still create rites of passage for their daughters um, that, that, that uh, um, excuse me, that mirror the Met Gala and how uh, they even in the midst of their gallantry um, still are wearing um, face masks with the same type of panache. Uh, and so all of these community submissions and community voices um, are, are how I, how the Autry view the museum experience as a whole. It's what I believe many historians um, our public historians feel is going to be the future, which is community curation, where communities are involved in the curatorial process and have direct investment in the telling of their stories that I believe um, will really show uh, uh, how the American, uh, about how America, the American West, has ought to been told this entire time. So it's interesting because um, the project you're in, embarked on now. Um, both um, relates to the present, um, meaning collecting objects that reflect 
uh, experiences now and that speak to the range of uh, different peoples affected by the COVID crisis. Uh, but you're also, at the same time, um, really preparing uh, the way for a future exhibition, a uh, kind of historical retrospective on the COVID crisis. Um, and it's interesting to operate in those two spheres of time, uh, living in the present, collecting, collecting as its own kind of constitutive act, its own kind of uh, uh, experience, and then preparing for your successors, or maybe you at a later stage in your career, uh, to look back on the enormity of this crisis with some measure of historical perspective. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, um, that's exactly the pursuit of this project and also the ways in which um, curators who will be my successors and um, will uh, benefit uh, and the institutions can benefit from initiatives such as this. And this is how I feel we can rectify the omissions that history often, and the, the historical blind spots that history has always had about capturing the voices of those who are on the fringes of, of society. And this is how we, cent- we center them and give them the agency that um, we often remark is, 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 is failing um, in telling previous histories um, in real sub- substantive ways. Well, it sounds like a very exciting vision for the Autry, a very exciting expansion, ongoing expansion um, of its uh, attempt to grasp the uh, American experience in the West. Um, And yet, you know, this moment, uh, the COVID crisis, this era of social distancing, um, raises the specter uh, of uh, a world without uh, mass physical assembly. Um, a world in which we don't all gather in large numbers in public spaces as we once did, whether it be in a museum or a stadium. Um, And I'm wondering if you've reflected at all, I mean, it's very early in uh, the process, but on what the future of museums uh, might be. Um, And I suppose looking not just at the challenge, but the opportunity that your collecting project opens up um, using... um, uh, the community-based approach using uh, virtual um, modes of communication and exhibiting. Um, I'm curious what you think the future of the museum looks like. The, the future of museums, in my humble estimation, Dr. Myers, is the, is the present. It, it, in fact, actually pulls from what our day-to-day is during COVID-19. It, the future of museums has to incorporate accessibility points that are beyond just the brick and mortar or the physical space that the institution inhabits. And that means that museums as a whole in its, in their future, if they, if they desire to be relevant and inclusive, they have to create digital entry points that, communities of color who may find them physically uh, unapproachable are still open and uh, comprehensive in telling their stories because institutions like museums have a real mandate and charter to to do so. And COVID-19 not only is bringing museums out of the 20th century and into the 21st century technologically, but it's also requiring them and also bringing them to task about how they uh, disseminate and share information about communities that they do or may not have had direct contact with in some time. And fortunately, the Autry Museum is rising to that occasion alongside so many others who are entrenched in initiatives very similar to ours. But I believe um, that with with social distancing and with uh, the certain requirements that museums will have to have in their future um, in making sure that their digital exhibition, that their exhibitions become virtual and tour worthy online, they have to uh, meet their moment 
um, head on. And that can all be done with the resources that are available to them. And I think this will make us all more nimble and able to be uh, real resources to the communities that surround us, not only locally, but, um, uh, but digitally as well. I suppose, especially when you get the kind of response you do, when you put out a call, you get such interesting material uh, that you can then present. Because, you know, what it seems to me you're suggesting is that the moment offers up the possibility of moving beyond the intimidating and even exclusionary nature of institutions like museums and democratizing and enfranchising uh, through virtual access in ways that they perhaps wouldn't have been able to do before. And that's a very exciting moment for a public historian, right? Yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. Because uh, we can assist the music. We can become uh, proverbial uh, midwives right. <laughs> in, in, in making sure that uh, that those goals are in fact achieved as well as enfranchising communities uh, at large. So um, it's been a really fascinating conversation, and I'm so delighted we were able to get you just the day after uh, this big story came out. I want to ask you a concluding question, which I typically ask of guests on uh, the podcast, um, which is, what does the past teach you? Um, What are the important lessons to learn from history? That's a fantastic question, Dr. Myers. And for for me, I, I am often thinking about it. And uh, it reminds me of a quote that sits near me where uh, James Baldwin once said that the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us and are consciously or unconsciously controlled by it in many ways. And history is literally present in all that we do. And I believe that like that quote, we and the histories that surround us truly do exist within us and that if we capitalize on our awareness of our individual histories we can in fact inform a a democratic future that is inclusive of our failures and trials in the past and make it more uh, a, a more possible future for us all to participate within in an equitable way. And that is how I see the past teaching me and instructing me in moving forward, not only as a public historian, but as a citizen in this democracy. Mm -hmm. So confronting the failures of the past as a way of enabling the triumphs of the future. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. This has been such a delight. Uh, Tyree Boyd-Pates, Associate Curator, of the Autry Museum of the West, a good friend of the Luskin Center. Uh, It's really been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, just really great. Uh, Then and Now is a production of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy with support from the UCLA History Department. Then and Now can be found on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let us know your thoughts on this and other episodes by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu. That's L-U-S-K-I-N, center at history.ucla.edu. Many thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, this is David Myers wishing you a healthy and safe day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.